Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We are joined by Ricard Rydell to talk about his success in touring cars, single-seaters and sports cars. Well, today on the Autosport Podcast, we're joined by a driver who I had the privilege of watching uh, watching when I was growing up, and indeed, I remember getting your autograph at British Touring Car Championship uh, round in your in your early years in the in the BTCC in the in the nineties. Well, I'm your host, Ed Straw. My guest is Ricard Rydell, a former British Touring Car Champion, Macau Grand Prix winner, Le Mans Class winner. If I list all your achievements, we'll we'll never get <laughs> we'll never get started. But uh, you are now retired. So, so what are you up to these days? Well, uh, thanks for being here. Um, well, nowadays, at least 50% of my time I spend uh, doing racing stuff, even though I'm not driving anymore. So I do uh, the expert commentary for Formula One in Sweden, uh, but only about half the races, uh, because 21 weeks away is a bit much. So, But quite happy doing that. I, I really enjoy it. And uh, I'm also uh, helping a young guy in karting, and hopefully he will be able to take the step to single seaters for next season so that keeps me quite busy 
Well, we'll have a, a, a chat about uh, this young driver later on. As always, look out on the lookout for the next uh, Swedish driver. Right, so I've got to say, it's quite a privilege to be here because I always remember you always talked of as, as someone who was a, a florist, which is slightly slightly misleading, shall we say? But uh, a fantastic place you got obviously in, in Stockholm for this, or just outside rather. Well, countryside outside Stockholm, yeah, um, not really florist. Uh, I don't. I'm not really good at flowers actually. But we were in when I grew up. My grandfather started a business which my fa- father run and then my brother and myself uh, have run it uh, now we've sold most of it and just our minor owner but uh, it's we're growing tulips uh, and import a lot of flowers from Denmark Holland and Sweden and sell sell uh, in grocery stores in Sweden so it's it's quite a big company now with about uh, I think around 300 and 350 em- employees and so and have about 500 shops that we deliver flowers to uh, almost on a daily basis so it's uh, that's have kept me busy over the years even when I'm I was racing uh, I did spend quite a lot of time in the business uh, so I never actually lived outside Sweden I did live in in Japan for a couple of years and in England for one or two years but other than that I was always commuting and uh, so it's been but it's been quite nice to have had something else uh, beside the racing because as you know when you race normally you sign a one-year contract or sometimes a two it's very seldom a three-year contract so when you have something else you you know that you can go back to that in case you don't have a drive the following year now I did continue for quite a while so perhaps I could have focused 100% on the racing racing side but I think I I think I was actually more relaxed having that during uh, during my racing career. Yeah, and, you, and you, as you say, you did go on for quite a long time. So you've been retired maybe six or seven years now, is it? Yeah, I did my last full season in 2012 after the Swedish Touring Cars. But after that, I only did uh, one-off races in the WTCC with a private team, a Swedish team. So uh, that 12 was my last full season. But 2009 was my last, uh, if you say, works season as a, as a works driver for Seat. Uh, so... Uh, it's been a few years uh, not racing. Mm-hmm. But a, a long and successful career, in fact, was looking at some of your uh, old overalls and, and, and trophies as a reminder of, of how much uh, success you, you did have. Well, obviously, we'll talk about your career. We'll probably jump around a little bit. But I guess probably the defining thing is because you, you are seen as a touring car driver. That was what most of your success was in. But you were also a very quick single-seater driver. And like, like so many drivers, you ended up moving into, into touring cars when... In some ways, single-seater opportunities didn't quite work, but you had a slightly unusual transition because not only did you end up famously going into touring cars with the Volvo 850 Estate with Tom Walkinshaw in 94, which is an unusual car, but I think you also you had had a chance to continue in single-seaters in, in Japan, hadn't you, in, in F3000? Yeah, um, I always considered myself, and I did for a long time uh, when I did touring cars, I considered myself a single-seater driver. and uh, But then... Of course, you, the single city career or single city was not that popular in in Sweden. Suddenly, when I raced in touring cars with Volvo and the telev- Swedish television was following it, uh, most people saw me as only racing touring cars. So it it took me a while before I uh, realized that okay, I'm not gonna go back to single seaters. I'm a touring car driver. But yeah, I did race in Japan for four years, um, and. Um, had an opportunity for 94 to race in uh, Japanese Formula 3000 and at that time 
it was a really good stepping stone to get into Formula One. I mean, let's see here of people like Eddie Irvin, yeah, Mika Salo, yeah, loads of uh, very quality drivers there. Exactly, Jack Villeneuve. I raced with him in '92 there, and so there's there's a lot of uh, friends from from the years in Japan. Uh, but then suddenly in '93, end of '93, I had a lung collapse. I think it was stress related, and commuting back and forwards to Japan from Sweden was quite quite tough. And it was a spontaneous lung collapse. And after that, I realized that perhaps uh, racing in England would be better. And I, I had the offer from uh, Tom Walkinshaw Racing to come and race for them in the British Touring Cars. At, and at that time, I I thought in my mind that was a step down. Like, okay, I give up the my dream of going to Formula One and, and get into touring cars. But I did it mainly because I've, I felt that it was tough commuting to Japan for another couple of years or so. And uh, quite soon I realized that the British Touring Cars was, was a very big and tough championship to be in. And also with more manufacturers coming in, it wasn't that many in 94, but then in, in 98 we had eight manufacturers, 16 works cars plus all the private cars. So I was, I guess I was a bit lucky to get into the British Touring Cars at the right time. So um, I, I enjoyed that a lot for sure. You weren't an obvious choice, but I guess you fitted in well with the brand because obviously they wanted Swedish driver. Obviously, they had Jan Lammers in the in the other car as well. It, it was interesting because that that Volvo project started off as a bit of a novelty, didn't it, with the estate? Obviously, I think they had to choose between whether to do the estate or a, a saloon for that year. So, did the the estate, which was a looked like a very sort of unwieldy, lazy kind of car to to drive, although did get some good pace out of it as the season went on. You're right there because uh, when I uh, decided to uh, to sign with Tom Walkinshaw, I wasn't really sure. I didn't know it was going to be an estate. There, there was discussions about it, and uh, so it was quite a big step from dreaming of Formula One to uh, sitting in, in a Volvo estate racing. So uh, it was quite a big difference there. And uh, I think the first year racing the estate was really a quite clever decision from from TWR and and Volvo because. They probably knew they weren't going to be that competitive in their first year because it was also the first year that Tom Walkinshaw Racing were building a front-wheel drive car. and uh, But they did have a lot of press and people talk about it still uh, about that first year with the Volvo Estate Racing, BMWs and uh, Alfa Romeos especially. So that that was quite good. But I think they also realized the car was quite heavy. Uh, of course, weight high up, uh, further back. It was a, quite a long car, so the change of direction was not very good and the 95 car was was much much better but not just because it was a saloon but also because TWR were, were in the second year of building a touring car but you must have thought at times when you were because that car didn't start off very competitive and you're, you're racing this estate car in the British Touring Car Championship there must have been times where you thought was this a good decision to, to go down this way because I guess at that point seeing what would happen in the next few years probably seemed quite far off I actually met Jan Lammers in, at the go-kart track earlier this year because his son is racing go-karts and we were talking about it. And when we tested that car just a couple, like a week or so before the first race at Thruxton, uh, he was going, he sat in the car first, driving it up and down Tom Walkinshaw's uh, driveway. And um, he st- went once up and down, stepped out and looked at me a little bit funny and said, maybe you should have a go, Rickard, and, and try it. And then he was like walking away. And then I tried it and I understand what he, I understood what he meant. The, in the beginning, the car was really, really difficult to drive. It actually jumped sideways a little bit on the bumps. There was a lot of bump steer and things in the car. So they hadn't really quite 
got it right. It became much better and we managed to qualify third once at Snetterton. I think we had a couple of fifth places, but it was never, we were never challenging for, for podiums with it. Uh, so not the best car, but still a lot of press. And uh, I think Volvo UK was very happy about us racing the estate. And then, but I think then afterwards, of course, with better results in 95, 96 and onwards, that it was probably the right thing to do to switch to a saloon car. Well, I guess the, and I guess the saloon version was work on that was was going on in parallel, wasn't it? Certainly, once you're during '94, so you were able to hit the ground running in '95, and then suddenly you're taking pole positions and yeah. and then the title hunt. Yeah, the '95 car was really good, and we were we were on Dunlops, so I had a lot of pole positions in in '95, uh, but they they were never as good in the races as the Michelin. So we we did struggle a little bit in the races, but then I enjoyed it. It was it was some good seasons race and had very uh, fun teammates and Jan Lammers of course is a really nice happy guy Tim Harvey uh, Kelvin and Gianni uh, uh, Morbidelli Vincent Rademacher had quite a lot of different teammates over the years uh, with Volvo and I I was probably the only driver doing all seasons with them uh, so uh, no, for me it was a it was a really nice uh, what you say series of years in my career because you could also you were also really part of the development and as the budgets got bigger in the british touring cars you were doing more and more testing and after from 96 or so we were testing every week and we were testing in france in italy over the winter and spain and it was um i enjoyed the testing part as much as the racing i, I know some drivers say they they don't like going testing but for me, that was always a challenge, and uh, to be with engineers talking what 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 you could do and uh, try new things and learn more, and I always enjoyed that part. So, so uh, that therefore it was good fun to be involved in a program where you also went testing a lot. I guess as time went on in the Super Touring era as well, there was the cars got increasingly high tech. I know Volvo did a lot of very clever stuff with with dampers and suspension and that kind of thing. So there's a a lot to get your teeth into, I guess, as a as a development driver. Yeah, and that's I, I guess that's why it was more fun because it was always something new. And we even had the we had like a completely hydraulic differential uh, that we tested a lot, uh, but we never raced it. Uh, I think the the ones when we had tested it and it was ready to race, they went to the to the organization and said this is what we're going to race next weekend and then they changed the regulation saying we couldn't do it so it was never raced but it was fun testing it and uh, playing with the, the which gear you had in throttle position brake position and everything dictated the the amount of lock you had on the diff so you could have like a 100 lock under braking and then opening it up um, around the corner tight corner the steering could also influence the lock of the diff all that, all things like that that you did was really fun. But then, uh, of course, that would have been, uh, it was very, very good uh, when we tested it, but, but we could never race it. So that was unfortunate, spending all those, all that money uh, for no use. I always think the differential is one of those great unseen things in racing cars. Because it's a huge thing in Formula One now, with the amount of different diff settings the drivers have got for different phases of the corner. And it's it's a vital setup tool, but it because it's quite difficult for people to kind of understand and relate to it. it it's difficult to, to communicate. And I guess, obviously, that's the sort of thing you're thinking about when you're doing F1 commentary and understanding things. But it's it's just one of those things that has can have such a big impact dynamically on the car. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think that's why I like commentary as well, now doing Formula One. It's like, okay, it's not like driving. It's not like you're uh, 
you feel the adrenaline as much on standing at the start before the start light goes out. Uh, but you do uh, you do get a little bit of it uh, before the race, and I mean, and it's nice also to be able to give the audience uh, explain things that they don't see. Uh, and as a driver, of course, you see a little bit more than the regular uh, viewer on television. And um, so for sure, and you, you you also look at the drivers what they do when you have the inboard camera camera shots, seeing how they change the brake balance between each corner and things like that. So they do. I mean, you're talking about not not. You, you're not allowed to text and drive, but that's what they're doing all the time in in Formula One. They're all they're always occupied with something else as well as driving. So it's quite it's quite busy being a Formula One driver nowadays. It's always fascinating to try and understand some of these things. But going back to that touring career, obviously when you went into '95, you were suddenly a, a championship contender. Uh, if, if memory serves, you did seem to have a bit of trouble getting the car off the line that year, and also you had a bit of trouble with John Clannon later in the year. That's uh, at Brands Hatch. In fact, I was at that race. That's probably where I got your autograph. Actually, '95 at, at Brands, where he, where he, well, I was going to say he fired you off, or you, you had the collision. Uh, <laughs> but that that was straight away in a second year. You you could have you could easily have won the title that year. I think where we were, I qualified. I think I had a I don't know fifteen or sixteen or seventeen pole positions or something, but. It was also due to the Dunlops. They were really good good to qualify on and they didn't last in the races very well. And uh, you were mentioning John Cleland. Of course, he was, at that time, he was a star in the British Touring Cars 93, 94, 95. And uh, coming from single seaters, you don't race that hard. Of course, sometimes you are wheel to wheel and, and you touch wheels, but I mean, you, can't, you can't push a car from behind and you don't expect to get a push from, from, from behind either. Uh, but in so that's something that I, I guess it took a season or so to learn how to race other cars and how to lean on the on another car. So I I must say thanks to to John and and the other drivers there uh, teaching me that. Um, Gabriele is one of them as well. But in '94, um, so that it is different. It's it's much different. And once you start to learn it, it's not it's not fun when you don't know how to do it. But after a year or so of touring cars and you get the hang of it and you understand what to do and you use it yourself then it's it's a different way of racing and and i i did really enjoy the races very it was very fun um, but but for sure it was different uh, coming from single seaters and and a bit of a challenge to learn that's that's for sure but uh, of course you, you were saying 95 i don't think we had a chance a shot at the title title really in 95 and maybe it was my experience as well and Yes, I did had have uh, 95, 96. I wasn't the best starter, uh, but I learned that as well. Um, so it, I guess it, it took a few years putting everything together to be able to win the championship. It's a experience, I guess. Is that start thing a front wheel drive thing in terms of just requiring a certain that? What, what's the, the sort of? Well, you don't it? you don't have much traction in a front wheel drive car, so uh, you've got to be very gentle with the clutch and you need to roll slowly before you can uh, well lift the throttle more so uh, so it's it's kind of an extended start phase compared to yeah if I mean with a rear wheel drive car you have much more traction so you can be more aggressive so basically that's it it's not you you once you you practice you learn and then then it's not a problem You, you get used to it but for sure more 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 difficult it's it's like you see formula one starting in the wet it's not it's more drivers may having a problem getting off the line in the wet than in the dry so 
it's, it's a bit similar if you'd make that comparison. Obviously, by then, you'd establish yourself as a top gun in the BTCC, but it did take a while to, to finally get that championship in uh, in 98 with the, the, the next car, the, um, the, the S40. Um, I guess winning at that point, because you had Audi coming in and the stakes just kept rising and rising and rising and the car had to be so strong to, to do it. I guess that was kind of a point where it was your time and you did need to get that, need to get that title. Yeah, I mean, when you look back, of course, there's a few things that you, you rate really highly. And for me, of course, as you mentioned, it was Macau in 92 and, and the British Touring Car Championship in 98 is, is one of them as well. It was really good to win, to win that championship. And uh, I think that because we were we were on the podium most races and they were always up there. You don't necessarily have to win all the races, but we um, we were competitive throughout the season from the beginning of the season and uh, had enough wins. The car was quite reliable. Uh, and with the 98 car, it was more fit to the regulations. The, the 850 was a bit big. Uh, so we had a car that was the right size. We had one year of learning in 97, and so it was the second year of running the S40. And uh, it uh, well, it all just came together. Uh, TWR was very professional. They were, it was a really good team. We were testing a lot, and uh, I enjoyed, as I said, I, I enjoyed those years. I think the most testing was in the '97, '98 season. So uh, both of those those years was probably the busiest time of my career. And of course, I have to ask about another important one in that period, which was Bathurst, which in this strange period where there were basically two Bathursts. 1000s for a, for a few years a super touring one and one for uh, Australian touring cars so that must have been a phenomenal track to go to and to and to win at so where does that is that one you look back on and say yeah that was a that was one of the, the big moments definitely I also and people ask you what's your favorite track and since being there the first time it's always been my favorite circuit it's a mixture of a, like a street circuit and a fast uh, normal track and the, the layout and the I mean you're the elevation difference the you have the chicane the dipper and you go, go over a crest it's like it has a bit of everything and then the long straight uh, high top speed very very challenging to drive really really nice circuit and it was fun like you said that the super or the championship in australia had those two years where bathurst 1000 was with super touring cars and so it's fun to have been the winner one of the years in 98 together with Jim Richards, really nice guy that I raced with there. And um, I, I enjoyed, the, enjoyed that very much. It was really fun with the, that we all went over there. And Super, Super Touring Car in Australia was quite popular in those years as well. But then going back, also doing it in the V8s was good. So I, I did that later with uh, Paul Radisich. Uh, so completely different, of course, doing it in, in one of their cars with the 600 brake horsepower not so much grip, very fast. So that was also quite enjoyable. I think we finished fifth or something. If I, I can't remember, but uh, somewhere there in two thousand and three, it must have been. I'm trying to remember. There was an opportunity to race full time in Australia, wasn't there? At one stage, would that have been with with TWR? Yes, in for Holden for for the two thousand season after ninety nine, Volvo pulled out of the British Touring Cars and. So I had the question from Tom Walkinshaw to race for Holden in 2000, 2001 for two seasons. But it meant moving there uh, with my family. And I was involved in our family business and uh, had at that time three kids, so uh, quite young. And we decided 
not to do it and stay racing in England. And I continued in the British Touring Cars with Ford instead for 2000 and then stayed involved with ProDrive for a few years. And uh, so, well, it, it's always a choice. Of course, you make decisions in your career, what to do and say no to th- some things. And there's always uh, some crucial decisions, but I don't regret it at all. It was, it, of course, it would have been fun to try out the uh, Australian Touring Cars uh, for a couple of years, but um, I, I did have fun racing in Europe instead. And obviously, the, the ProDrive Ford project was a yeah, huge investment in that. That's kind of seen as the, the sort of peak super touring project, isn't it? The huge amounts of money going into it, all-star driver lineup. What, what was it like being part of that? Was that a step on even from, from what TWR yeah. were doing with Volvo? Well, Bitch Touring Cars had lost a little bit by then. I think there was only like three or four manufacturers at that time. And uh, it, it was eight in 98. So we, it, you could see British Touring Cars was always losing a little bit. It had got gotten too expensive. So the budgets were getting crazy. And like I say, with high budgets, it's more testing. So yeah, it was it was a lot of work. And uh, But I came into the team the second year of running to an Alamenu, Anton Reid had, uh, had been there the year b- before. Uh, it, it was really fun. I enjoyed it, but and I was ended up third and also third uh, behind my teammates. But going into the last race at Silverstone, we all, all three of us had a chance to win. Uh, but my car was leaking, leaking of something, uh, radiator or whatever, before the start. So it was pulled out of the grid, and therefore I didn't have a chance. So, but that's just things that happens. It was. It was. It was a really good, fun, competitive year, and uh, really fun to race together with Alan and Anthony. So, yeah, that was an amazing finale, wasn't it? It was a night race, the last one. And I remember Manu went off battling with Plato in the first race, so it all sort of closed up. So it's a yeah, one of the very, very memorable ones. Uh, obviously, there are so many strong drivers came up, and obviously the year before, we've uh, seen Aiello winning, who was yeah, kind of up there with you and a few of the other guys as sort of the the, the leading BCCC drivers of. of of that era what was it like being able to just be in this kind of intensity of competition because you had high level drivers manufacturers with very well developed cars putting in big money it's it we've almost never really seen anything like that repeated certainly not in in touring cars now i guess it was i mean it was like a world championship for uh, touring cars at that time uh, although it was just it was the british touring car championship but there was teams manufacturer teams like we said eight eight of them in 1988 and um yeah, it was very competitive, and uh, you had to be very tough. Of course, you you were not best mates on the track, but then it was also quite relaxed outside the races. We were it was quite often a test on the Thursday. It could be a day off on the Friday, and then racing Saturday, Sunday, and with the other drivers, a few of us went went off playing golf or doing other stuff outside racing. So I must say that it was it was quite a good uh, good fun as well, not just. Uh, very super competitive all the time it was uh, it, it was good fun that you could also enjoy uh, spending time with the drivers outside the races but then of course there was also sometimes when you didn't talk to each other for for a few races or so after an incident uh, but that happens it, i mean with a lot of competitive drivers uh, as you mentioned it's we all want the same thing and uh, of course what you do on the track and racing goes f- first i mean that's that's the priority being a friend with the other drivers is the second thing. It's not as important, of of course, when you're when you're that competitive. Um, I think it's the same for everyone. So you all know the rules, 
and um, but we could still enjoy spending time together. By that time, you're firmly established as a touring car, a touring car driver. That's kind of where careers go. But we should look back a little bit earlier at, at your single seater career, and uh, interested to know how you kind of got into racing in the first place from uh, from looking around sort of where you came from. It's quite a long way from uh, from the normal sort of place you'd expect people to get into single seater racing. So how how did this all originally start for you? Well, I uh, my father did rallying when he was younger for fun, just not much. My so my brother started karting uh, before me. Uh, I started when I was nine. You were you had to be ten to to race in in karts at that time. So at ten years old, I started racing, and it was more as a hobby with the family. We went uh, away for weekends uh, doing go karts, and uh, I in when I was sixteen, seventeen. At that time, you couldn't race cars until you were eighteen. And I won the Swedish championship when I was 16 and 17. So I got help from Pico Truberg, was a famous Swedish driver in the 60s, uh, not just in Sweden, but also abroad. He helped me into uh, Formula 3, uh, so I could do the Swedish championship to start with. And uh, without him, I wouldn't be able to, uh, to carry on. He also found a sponsor to support me one year in England in 89. So it was d- direct from karting to F3. Uh, and I, I, th- I guess, go in when I was doing go karts. I had never had the, I was never thinking about doing Formula One, and I didn't really watch Formula One until, until I started racing myself when I was eighteen, um, and then I got more interested, and of course, um, s- followed it much, much closer, and so then from 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 uh, F three in. 89 in England after that I didn't have a sponsor so that was like difficult to carry on luckily I did well in qualified on pole position in Macau in 89 and uh, although I only got to the first corner before a crash it was enough to get the interest from Tom's Toyota so uh, just from the Macau results really I signed a contract with Tom's Toyota to race in Japan in 1990 so I did half the Formula 3 season in, in Japan because I had already decided with Ed Jordan was helping me at that time and he helped me uh, to do Group C. So Group C for Vern Schuppan also in 1990, four races in Japan plus Le Mans. And so ni- 19 was really my first year where I, I got paid to race. So the first works contract from 1990. And that was a big, uh, well, it was a big st- step in my career from paying to race to to getting paid although not much in the first year so that was that was good and it does seem Macau was a bit of a, a mission for you because you went there quite a few times so 89 was the first and you eventually won it in 92 I can certainly remember you leading at least one of the races in 91 did, did Coulthard yeah. pass you for the, I think you finished third overall in 91 so it, it was that was obviously quite a, a kind of big deal to yeah, going I mean, back there in '92 and finally, finally win it. Macau was always the big race of the year for everyone, and uh, yeah, I did go back a few times from '89, '90, '91, '92, '93. So uh, I've been then also in touring cars, uh, but of course it was very important to to win, and uh, I think winning '92 was very good for me. Uh, at that time, I I had had some contact with Eddie Jordan and things, but. In Sweden, Formula One was not even shown on television that those years. Uh, Stefan Johansson, who was the Formula One driver before then, uh, had stopped, and it was so it was not so popular. So it was difficult to attract sponsors and and to get help to carry on. So 
what I did was carry on in Japan. So I did another year in, in Japan, 93, and then obviously the Vo- Volvo contract in 94. So what, I never got higher than that uh, on a single-seater level. Uh, but still, I think it's it's nice to be, have been able to uh, to sign a works contract, carry on as a works driver from well, from 1990 till 2009, really, in different cars. Yeah, it's not a bad career, like, is it? Yes. <laughs> but it's interesting that the, the way you describe you, you got started, because although it was very, very hard to find the money then, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to do something like that now, unless unless you just have huge sums of money you can pour into it. When you look at how much F three costs, F two, you know, vast. You know, you, you need a seven figure sum to spend yeah, but- uh, overall to to have any chance of making that work. Yeah, but it's always been like that. It, it's expensive sport. It costs a lot of money, but the best drivers uh, all at that time and at this time now, they always seem to be able, there's always someone that that they attract the interest of and they are willing to help them. So if you, if you, are, a, if you are a top level driver at the very, very top, then normally if you get one or two chances, one chance, then you show them the results and you have someone who's interested in to help you and we see there's there's many example of other drivers who's made it thanks to their thanks to the results that they've been there. Maybe not always had a, a big backer with them. Hmm. No, that's very very true. The, the other positive this these kind of days there are more official drive, junior driver schemes that kind of thing because there was nothing quite of the ilk of Red Bull that kind of thing back in back in your day. I mean, there were, obviously there were some companies that were sponsoring quite a few drivers but not not in the same way i guess then it was uh there was the cigarette sponsors who who had good su- supported the team so as a driver you could get there for half the budget or so and like you say nowadays it's the the formula one teams who have the junior programs that is the, probably the best thing if you ha- if you don't have the budget yourself if you are good enough you get signed up by them and at least you get uh, a big part of the budget covered that's one way of making it sure and then if we, if we look back to, well, forward again to uh, after you finished doing BTCC, you, you kind of did make it into the, the kind of next strong era of, of touring cars with Super 2000, which eventually became the, the, the World Touring Car Championship. You had a, a brief spell driving Volvos again in the, there's kind of that period where before, just as the European Touring Car Championship was starting, uh, when, when that was running, but it wasn't a particularly, it wasn't a specially competitive car at that stage, was it? The, uh... No, there was, uh, it was a good car, but uh, probably power-wise we were quite slow. Maybe too much aero. Too, uh, we had too much um, downforce in the car or a little bit too big. Maybe not the engine, but it was really good at some circuits, uh, which was more technical. And then at Spa, I think we were like 15Ks down in, on top speed. And But uh, staying with ProDrive, uh, before I did that with Volvo, I did the... Um, 550 Maranello we developed yes, yeah. that for, for GT racing that was a great car wasn't it it, it was a really good car and uh, so we did some races in the FIA GT championship in 2001 I think we did five five or six races and won three of them so ProDrive did a really good job of developing that car and we raced, I raced it at Le Mans twice as well and then also developed the S60 for European touring cars so it was quite a lot of uh, testing and development which I liked uh, being part of but like you said, the, the Volvo in 2002 and three was not the most uh, competitive car. And then I went to Seat for 2004. So it was, there was one another year, I think three years of European touring cars. And ni- in 2005, it became the World Touring Car Championship. And I think I remember winning a race at Silverstone and 
someone said that uh, it was the first time a Swede had won a world championship race on track since Ronnie Peterson. So it, it <laughs> wow, was, yeah, it would be, yeah. So it was quite, uh, uh, didn't really think, not really quite the same thing in touring cars and Formula One, but still uh, was quite fun being part of, of that. Now, talking about the Ferrari, when I mentioned to my colleague Gary Watkins, who I think, uh, you know, he said to say hello, he said I should ask you about racing the 550 Maranello at the A1 ring. And in his words, George Howard Chapel tried to cook you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, it's always, uh, we, I remember we'd been testing and we'd been developing and uh, we had uh, quite a good airflow into the car. So the, the driver, I mean, you didn't get too hot. And I think George uh, thought that uh, they could gain a little bit of air if they closed that down a little bit. So they lowered the air intake, uh, which made a very big difference. There was no air into the driver and we we were really, really tired and hot in the car i remember getting out of the car for the, for the after the first hour probably losing two or three seconds a lap because i i could hardly look out and it was really really tough uh, lying on the floor and then trying to recover for an hour and then getting back into the car uh, for another hour at the at the end of the race uh, it it's always a trade-off between what you need for the driver and what you do to make the car quicker so uh, I guess at that time they got it a little bit wrong, but most of the time they had it right. Mm-hmm. Oh, a very successful project, and of course, I guess that led on to when you did go to Le Mans, I think two thousand and seven in the Aston, yeah, and and got the class win in the uh, in the Pro Drive car. Yeah, it was very fun to be part of that, uh, to be back with Pro Drive for another year, and uh, I, that's one year when I didn't race in World Touring Cars because World Touring Cars I did from two thousand well five till nine, except for two thousand seven. And uh, so I, w- I was doing most of the testing in, in the beginning of the year before Le Mans. I, w- I remember going to Paul Ricard and doing like 30-hour tests before uh, the Le Mans 24 hours. And um, also, again, being part of the development, uh, going all sorts of places to do different tests is quite interesting. But uh, then also the, the class win uh, together with David Brabham and Darren Turner that year. Uh, it was... Uh, of course, something on your list to have done, although it wasn't an uh, outright win, uh, still a class win with GT1. The time was uh, something special, definitely. It says a lot about your career, doesn't it? That's almost uh, becomes an afterthought when, you, when your name's mentioned. You think, oh yeah, of course, you won uh, when you cast Le Mans, which uh, probably says, uh, says a fair bit. But uh, you mentioned there that obviously you didn't do World Touring Cars in 2007. That was the year I covered uh, world touring cars but you did you did appear i think a couple of times because you turned up at macau at the end of the year but the, the one i wanted to ask you about was anderstorp when you entered in a uh in a fourth chevrolet rml chevrolet for obviously your home round so logical to put the the star swedish driver in and the second race which if memory serves started wet i think menu and Lorini started on wets and you started on slicks so it's one of those races that come that came to you and you, I think it's basically on the last lap, you, you got through Menu and then Lurini almost at the last corner, if if memory serves, for, for the lead. And there was a bit of controversy there about whether you should or should not have done that. I remember Nicola Lurini being furious on the on the podium. And uh, yeah, so I basically wanted to ask you exactly what exactly what did go on there, because it was a little bit murky at the time. Well, uh, Nicola is Italian, of course, so they always show their feelings. 
a lot more than us from Northern Europe, I guess. There's now, a contrast there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it was um, nothing strange for me. I, they asked me to come and do uh, this race, Ray Malloch. So I did some tests for them and uh, we we did change the car a bit from after after doing the tests and I found quite a good setup. I was quite happy. And like you said, in this race, I was on slicks starting a little bit further back and uh, it dried out. And uh, But when I when I was asked to do the race, I asked what's the, if I do the race, I, I want to be able to win. So in my contract, I was allowed to win. That was very clear. Uh, but if it wasn't for a win, if it was for another position, I would have to, to maybe let the other drivers pass if they asked me to. So for me, it was not... Uh, uh, not strange it, it was uh, i was clear to win and uh, my engineer at the time uh, was pushing me on to win the race until the last corner but one like two corners from uh, from the from the end of the last lap he said that no you have you can't go you can't go past you have to stay behind or something like that but uh, it was too late it was like one and a half two corners to go so if they did say that they should have said it a little bit earlier so you could could think about it you you don't have time to think when it's two corners to go and you're just passing the other car for the lead so for me it was very clear and i was congratulated by ray malik after the race uh, and uh, the others and then suddenly when uh, nicola was quite unhappy and talking to the engineers and ray and then they changed around and thought mm, maybe this was not so good so i never talked about it afterwards i didn't want to blame anyone or anything but uh, I, I think I did the right thing according to our agreement. Uh, and that's fine for me. So it was it was not that strange for me. I was quite happy with it. Yeah, I remember from the outside. Well, sure, I think Nicola Larini was doubly annoyed because he hadn't won a race for about five years or something. So. Actually, the, the year after, I remember being, I think he was on pole position or I was on pole. We were on the front row anyway in Estoril. I was in the Seat and um, I passed him. I don't know if it was on the first lap or so, and won the race, and he was second. So I felt a little bit sorry for him. Then, well, it, it's like that being a driver. Sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're not. But to be able to win a world championship race on home soil, that's that's something pretty amazing, isn't it? So I guess that must stand as a as one of the things you look back on because there aren't many world championship races in Sweden to, <laughs> to, to, to win it's not often we have an international race in Sweden of course so there was a lot of Swedish people and the sponsors around and of course that was uh, probably help uh, putting the more adrenaline and for me and to then to be able to have a chance to win that race was, was of course special um, but still it, it was uh, it was just a one off race and uh, then uh, afterwards uh, just before Macau, I think I got a question from Seat to be able to to join them, and uh, after Macau, then signing up for another two seasons. So I, I did. I was quite happy to uh, get another go at the World Touring Cars for another couple of years. Yeah, and a competitive era that as well. A lot of, well, in fact, a lot of the Super Touring stars were still were still going there, and you see people like Tarkini. Muller yourself were going on the talk and he's still going it's, yeah. on unbelievably <laughs> I'm quite amazed by how, how he does it I think he's uh, he must be 56 57 or something yeah, like yeah. Gabriel Tarkin and, and to be at that age and be to still be very strong competitive and you really need to have the motivation to, to do it and to push yourself to be able to do it and I'm really impressed by by the way he's done it so uh, I don't think it's very common it's not many drivers you see of course, in touring cars, everything happens a little bit slower, so you don't you don't need the reactions you do as as you, if you're racing in single seaters. And I guess in Formula One, 
um, the ultimate age with a bit of experience you probably if you start early now you could probably have the experience at 24 25 and you start to lose reaction time everyone says this is different but maybe at 34 35 uh, you so your best age is probably around 26 to 33 whatever uh, so i guess hamilton is at the peak maybe past the peak um, but when you're 40 of course you don't have the same reaction time as you have before you still have the experience and you probably learn and you can drive around it with other in other ways but in touring cars when everything happens slower uh, i'm sure you can still be competitive as you long as long as you have the motivation to to go on and carry on and that's what what someone like gabriele has done uh, for me i i'm really pleased that i did stop when i stopped to because i mean you don't realize realize it until after you stop that there is other things which is also really challenging and fun to do in life and everything has its point of life if you like and now to be able to um, go to the races as a expert commentator more for fun and joy and seeing a lot of people of course there's a lot of other people ex drivers that i raced with in the in the paddock that you meet up with and um, so I quite enjoy it. Not, not uh, maybe I wouldn't want to do all twenty-one races because then I wouldn't be able to do anything else, uh, or not much else. So uh, for me, it's it's quite good to do about half the races. Yeah, it's a, it's a big old commitment. The uh, that's a very much a full-time job, uh, as I know too well. But it's interesting when you're talking about drivers sustaining. I was wondering if that if that's something. Can you detect any kind of decline when you're when you're driving? Because I, I would argue that from from following touring cars from the outside you didn't look quite as strong towards the end of that era when you'd have been what like 41 42 kind of time at the end with Seat as you'd maybe been five six years ago are you aware of any decline or when looking back can you say oh actually I can see that starting to happen or do you think you were still at the same level and because obviously external factors can I think play into that. I think probably when you look back it's easy to to see it uh, afterwards saying oh that that year after that year and this I lost a little bit or um, I think when you're driving, when you're in it, you're the last one to admit that you have lost anything. And you, because you always look ahead, you're always trying to do your best, and you're always fighting for in qualifying. You're trying to put everything together. Perhaps if you sit down in the middle of the season or in the winter after the season, you can look back at your results and saying, hmm, "I wasn't as good this year as last," but this drive and the the will to get better and to do your best is always there and you always look ahead and you try to motivate yourself so i i think it's difficult to uh, it's difficult when you're actually racing to say that you i've i've passed the peak i'm now going downhill i'm not as good then when you feel that and if you do see that and you accept it then i think it's the time to stop for sure or perhaps it's almost a year too late to, to stop it's interesting you mentioned the the Lewis Hamilton age things. We did have the thing um, recently. I think it was over the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend where Nico Rosberg put out his uh, his video blog where he basically suggests that Max Verstappen probably is better than Lewis Hamilton at this stage, and he talks about that you have a little bit of a decline physically, but that's compensated for over a period by the experience. And he sort of suggested maybe Hamilton's in that period where there's a little bit of a loss of that last little edge, and. Uh, but it's compensated for. I mean, how do you see that? Because it's fantastic, this. I, I love it when we have these kind of intergenerational things where you've got Hamilton, who's the star of now, and Verstappen, who very, very clearly 
is well, he's, he's a star of now, but he he will win many championships provided he has the car. How, how do you see that from your position well, as a commentator? Well, with Verstappen, you could see it already when he came into it that he here is a supernatural talent and. Seventeen, he made his debut yeah, in Formula One. So you, hadn't, I don't think you'd even raced a car at seventeen. And I, st- I st- tried to explain that uh, how I meant with the biggest talent on the grid in on Swedish television. We we were doing thing, and uh, uh, what I meant was the raw talent, like the driving talent, was like top ten out of ten. But he didn't have the racecraft, so that was he was that's what he was lacking, and all, he was also lacking experience and maturity, if you like. A year ago, where we all know it, after Monaco last year, uh, that he's been phenomenal and have top five finishes since then. And um, I think that it's also the maturity that you need a bit of age. I mean, you need to grow into a man, not a boy. He's done that. And then uh, also realize that you can't push 101% all of the time. You can only go as fast as your car is letting you. He's realized that as well. Even I was surprised after Hungary that... He was saying, well, that was as good as we could do. Uh, 12 months ago, he would have been, or 14 months ago, he would have been really angry with himself. He, uh, he, was, he would have been angry for a second place. He wasn't now. So there is the maturity and everything and the talent. So he's got it all together. And maybe at, maybe at 22, which he is very soon, he has got everything all together. I think it will still be better. I think he's going to, get better at 23, 24, 25. So he will have a, quite a few very good years in him. Whereas uh, Lewis Hamilton at 33, I agree a little bit with what uh, Nico Rosberg say, but perhaps it's difficult for Nico Rosberg to say that. Uh, and and uh, Lewis did give him a bit of a... <laughs> give him back, back a little bit in that in an article I read. Yeah, there's, there's yes, a bit of history there between yeah, those two, it's fair to say. Exactly. And of course, Lewis Hamilton will never agree that he has lost a bit of an edge, that that he's losing everything, a, a bit of motivation and stuff like that. He will push as much as he can as long as he's racing. And then once he stops in maybe three years' time or whatever, he will say that, yes, when he look back, yes, I did lose a little bit that year from from that year to that year. It's not You can't say that to yourself. You can't even admit it to yourself as long as you carry on and push 100% you have to you have to just keep going and then in the winter between the seasons or before you sign the next contract then you need to sit down and and think about where you are what you've done and what you want to achieve if you if if you want to achieve more in racing or not and I, I guess he will carry on a few more years he should do, shouldn't he? I mean, he said he could easily go on for five years, so that's taking what to thirty-eight-ish. That's that's very possible. The interesting thing is, obviously, he's got the question of whether he does the new deal for twenty twenty-one or beyond, and he could very easily go into twenty twenty-one with seven championships and basically pretty much level with the Michael Schumacher records, which is that's got to appeal to him. I think earlier in his career, he didn't really worry about that, but I guess when you start to get to that sort of thing and you're a little bit older, maybe you do start thinking, oh, actually, yeah, I could retire as an eight-times champion with 100 wins, which would be phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, uh, if he, if he do get seven wins, uh, of course he should go for an eight, but it's easy to say. He, he does have uh, other interests, uh, so uh, perhaps he wants to pursue them and do do a bit, bit more in life than just racing, but uh, of course we would all like like him to carry on a few more years and, and there can be some really good battles with the... Uh, Max Verstappen, one of them, and but there's also Charles Leclerc coming up, and 
uh, more young drivers. So I'm. It's quite good. Good to see more young drivers had a chance in Formula One this year. Uh, when you look, look back at your career, do you think you could have done a good job? I think you'd have done a good job in Formula One, unquestionably. But do you look back and sort of wish you maybe had a chance to do that and think actually, yeah, you could have gone up against the the Schumachers, that that kind of thing. I mean, very very high bar. Let, assuming you had the the machinery, if you did get in, or is it quite easy just to sort of say, well, it didn't go that way, so it's, no, it's not I, something you really think about. To be honest, I, I when I look back, I'm really happy that I had 20 consecutive years as a as a works driver for different four years Toyota, ten years Volvo, and then see at Aston Martin, and uh, there's not it's not many drivers who's been able to do that. So I'm really happy with what I've done. Uh, of course, uh, after '93, if I'd stayed in Japan. 3000 another year and pushed but I didn't have the the uh, uh what you say the will or the strive to to do it I I felt quite happy to go into touring cars uh, so which means that maybe I didn't have enough will what you call it yes yeah you can say uh, will or the ruthlessness to put yeah, exactly. everything to one side yeah I I was uh, I had a, at that time one child and then I had another two children and Perhaps I wanted a little bit more convenient uh, life, not traveling all the time and uh, spending all the time with with the racing. Uh, so, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because I always think to be, particularly to be a say world champion in Formula One, you do have to be almost an unbalanced individual. You've got to have such a ruthless determination, and we see this often. That makes a difference between the the people like the Verstappens and the Hamiltons and those who are maybe in the second tier, the sort of Valtteri Bottas's, this kind of thing who have a lot of ability but maybe they just don't have that edge but for it they're almost more <laughs> rounded human beings and that's the same i, I think in all sports uh, you have to go in 100 percent. and of course I, I i really liked competing and the competition i still do when i play ice hockey in the veterans league in stockholm or uh, i play paddle or anything else i do uh, you still you still want to win whatever you do um, but then now with the with more age and maturity you you take it a little bit more easy. You're not you're not pushing as hard. But like you say, for sure, there is there is some drivers who is uh, there's nothing else but driving. And I think to become a star in Formula One, you do have to have that killer instinct. You 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 really need to to do every anything you can to get there. Otherwise, you're not going to get there. That's it's a simple answer. If you if you had to pick out a couple of drivers who really stood out as as rivals for you, the the guys you really respect them and you raced against many many very high quality drivers but is there any if you had to pick out one or two that that you felt were at the high level who there was that extra special satisfaction from beating them is, is there anyone that leaps to mind well if you if i look back i did race against uh, mika hakkinen when we were 10 11 years old in go-karts um we raced against each other in f3 as well but he didn't have a good year then he he, he was much quicker following year uh, so Mika Hekkinen is definitely one of them. I remember his raw talent in karting. When it was raining, he was super quick straight away. Um, then uh, in in touring cars, I always thought Alan Menu was was very good. He was always quick. He was always up there, um, and we kept we had really good contact. We still we have, I haven't spoken to him now for a while, but we did do speak sometimes. And um, in sing in F, in F3 um, I did. I raced with Jack Villeneuve Tom Christensen in Japan that was more fun uh, I don't think uh, well they were both very, very good of course um, but 
No, it's yeah, it's been a few drivers. Definitely, I think I had some race, one one or two races with Schumacher in there at Macau one year when he, him, him and Hekkinen had this fight in nineteen ninety or something. Yeah. yeah. So there, no, there's for sure there's been quite a few drivers that I raced with who's been very very fast. Coulthard one year in F three. Um, I think there was one year with Gilles Deferre and David Coulthard Barrichello when I when I raced in British F three. So so it's of course it's been fun to to race against a lot of F1 drivers uh, that they became. Um, so looking back, it's been quite a few years of uh, fun fun years of racing. Uh, and you did mention um, at the start that you were working with a young Swedish driver. So what can you tell me, tell me about about them is it a name we should look out for and what why yeah what, what's caught your attention about it well he's uh very very talented i think one of the most talented uh karting drivers in that we've had in sweden e- ever it's dino Beganovic, and he was uh second this year in the vsk euro championship he was italian champion and uh, i mean so he he was definitely top top in the world of karting if you can win anything in italy yeah exactly then you're you're quick yeah and all the i mean all the top drivers was was in those in that championship and those races so he has a good chance to to go on and i'm trying to help him a little bit and there's other people as well involved and uh, i think it would be very good good to see uh, another swedish drivers going up up the ranks Uh, we have a couple of drivers in singer cities at the moment from sweden like linus lundqvist uh, uh, Hampus Eriksson, but there's not no no one really close to that you can see is is only a couple of years away from F1. So it would be would be fun to see more Swedish young drivers getting through the ranks. So so how are you helping them out? Do you offer driving advice, or is it more just the wider? This is how you be a racing driver, kind of thing. The wider perspective that always young drivers benefit from. Well, it's a bit of everything, and and um, but the biggest. Uh, stepping stone now is the financial side to get to, to well get some investors and sponsors involved which we have managed for this season and uh, hopefully for next season he can take the step into singer seaters so logical for formula four obviously is the obvious first step so where where ideally do you think he'll he'd be next year budget allowing which is well, an easy um, thing to say well like you say f4 is a, a good championship there's a uh, that's a good starting step. I think they. I think it's good now that uh, FIA that they made it F1, F2, F3, F4. It's easier for also for people outside when you're talking to sponsors, investors, and everything, and you're explaining the stepping stones through racing. Before, when you try to explain uh, that it's so uh, you do Formula Renault and then you do GP3, GP2, F, it, it was more you had to be uh, you had to know a lot more and explain it a little bit more. Now it's very simple, so I, I like that, and. Uh, Formula 4 in Europe is becoming bigger and bigger and, and attracts a lot of drivers. So, well, that's the uh, very one good uh, place to be, definitely. And how about the, the interest in Formula 1 in Sweden as a whole? You mentioned back in your younger days it wasn't a, a big thing here. Obviously, obviously Marcus Ericsson raced in Formula 1. I think he had five seasons and he's now gone off to, to Indy Carney. He had, a, he had, I think he's a driver who had his good days and he was good good days and bad days I guess an inconsistent driver maybe but very very quick when things were right so I guess that created some interest even though he wasn't very often in particularly competitive cars it did I think it's quite a good interest from Formula 1 There, I mean uh, there is uh, it's on one main channel that they show the races afterwards in the evening but then if you if you want to see all the races and everything you have to put on Via Sat Motor 
it's called the channel and uh, we do fo- uh, they do follow uh, also not just formula one but also in the car and now we have marcus ericsson and felix rosenquist in in the car and uh, F- felix is one in one of the top teams has done really really well and had a second finish recently yeah, he's a so, very quick driver actually i've been slightly surprised by seasons it started so brilliantly and then yeah. it's been very up and down and because you expect him to take to that brilliantly because he is such a good and adaptable driver. Yeah, but he showed speed straight away, qualified really well and raced really hard. I guess now with a bit more experience, he's also learned how to do the races better, how to uh, to keep the speed and how to keep the tires alive and everything. So he's learning more and more. And I think I think both Marcus and Felix will be better drivers in their second season. There's a lot of new circuits and things in the US with different surfaces and it's not not like going to the Formula One races, which is quite easy to simulate in the simulator and the grip wise. And the, the one corner is much like another corner. It's but here it's a different story with the ovals and everything. So I think they're both gonna could have a good season next year. He seems to be quite happy, uh, Ericsson in IndyCar. I ran into him at Grand Prix recently, and that seems to it seems to suit him quite nicely. Yeah, and he he's showed really good speed in the races. Uh, but he needs to, of course, learn how to qualify a little bit better in the in w- with the team. Uh, it's, it's not one of the top three teams, but it's still uh, good enough. And uh, perhaps together they will uh, take the step uh, up next year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, those drivers will attract a fair bit of interest in in Sweden. So, uh, I mean, how, looking back, how how well known were you in Sweden for your motor racing activities? Uh, when- not much before British Touring Cars, but British Touring Cars got got very popular in in, in Sweden. They, it was shown on national TV eight o'clock Tuesday evening, uh, so after the weekend it was broadcasted at eight o'clock. So it was really good viewing times, and uh, some at one one year I think we reached uh, sometimes between eight to ten percent of the population watching it, which was which is very good figures, and uh, so. Anyone that hadn't didn't know me before then, they always thought I had just done touring cars, nothing else. So, and then, uh, of course, now it's not show much of touring cars on television. So, if I meet someone nowadays that they remember me from the touring car days, they think that I've only done that, nothing else. So it's a, it's quite funny how when people sees you, uh, they only see what uh, they don't follow you really because they only seen what you've done on on television. And before we finish, I should just ask you, because you did have a, a final championship success later on in your career, because you won Scandinavian Touring Cars. Um, but it's a, it's a final chance. So why why did you end up end up there? Was that just a good chance to race? I was going to say on your doorstep, but Sweden's quite a big country. It's a bit of a trek to, uh, to some of those circuits. But how, how did you end up there? And what and was it a nice way to kind of sign off, sign off to have those, those I think it's a couple of years you did it full-time wasn't it yeah that's right i I stopped after 2009 Uh, so 2010 i did some commentary for for sweet for television for dtm and swedish touring cars and i i didn't have any plan to carry on i thought that's it put my helmet up but then i had a question from the chevrolet team uh, in sweden to race two years from then 11 and 12 and uh, i thought well i i I did miss racing and uh, of course when you've done it all your life it's something that uh, you know that you can still do well enough, even though perhaps you had lost it a little bit at that time. But uh, so I was really happy to do that finish off, and I had a f- we had a win in eleven and second place in in twelve. So it it was a good way to finish in at home in Sweden because I, obviously I hadn't raced in the Swedish touring cars ever before, just one off races a couple of times. Uh, 
So that was, uh, I was, I enjoyed it, but uh, it was enough after 12. I was quite happy to, to stop after that. Although I guess we, we have seen you relatively recently turn out in a, a super touring Volvo. It's a Silverstone Classic you did last year, wasn't it? That's right. I uh, was actually Jason Minshaw who's running that car in England and uh, he asked me to come and race it, uh, which I really enjoyed. Jump into the 98 S40. There was quite a few of the mechanics from the TBR days that came to, to watch the race. Uh, but racing that car again, sitting in it, and you remember how, how it was. And they, it also makes you realize how much the cars develops over the years, the differentials, and much more driver-friendly. And it actually made me think about Formula One in the 80s with uh, more than 1,000 horsepower and with those cars, at how how difficult they must have been to drive. A Formula One car today has, okay, almost 1,000 power with, all, with the ener- extra energy. But I think very, very sophisticated uh, differentials and things like that that makes it easy to drive. I think Formula One should be another... 300 big horsepower and uh, much less aero. They don't have to go faster around the lap. Uh, so take the aero, make the longer braking distances uh, and a lot more power. Um, that's I think that's the way to go in Formula 1. I think a lot of the drivers would agree with that. That's kind of the direction that the Grand Prix Drivers Association has been pushing things towards. I'm not I'm not sure how well the 2021 regs are going to work though. It's uh, yeah, a little bit a little bit untidy. We should just say to finish off, you have got your championship winning S40 Volvo, the 98 BTCC. When I always like it when drivers have, have cars like that. Do you, do you ever just go and sit in it and remember old times? No, not quite. Uh, it's been an <laughs> I, I do know some drivers who do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I find it amazing yeah. just have the, yeah. <laughs> they, like they sit in it like a fan might. <laughs> I have it here in, in, the, in the building where I keep my office. And uh, it's been in a museum for 10 years. Uh, and then I thought, uh, why not bring it home and watch it here instead? So it's, it's good fun to, to have kept one car, at least, from, from my career. I'm not really, I don't really want to collect anymore. It's, it's you know, the Fernando Alonso-style museum where he's basically yeah. got everything in it. No, well, that's, uh, uh, it's good if you can do, but no, it's, it's enough. It's, uh, it takes time also to look after things. So, uh, well... It, I don't have. A, I don't like to spend too much time on the old things. It's good fun to try new things all the time. Yeah, I do remember one driver who talking about looking after things. Who had a an active suspension era car, which he had sat around, but it always looked terrible because you've got to prime the suspension so it sits correct. Otherwise, it just ends up sat on the floor. It just looks like you're not looked after it after it properly. So, uh, yeah. Well, uh, we've taken up enough of your time. Thanks very much, uh, Ricard, for your for your insight. It's been great to talk through your. Uh, very long and successful career. Uh, thanks a lot. Well, please do check out autosport.com for all the latest on Formula One, touring cars, the whole world of motorsport, and our plus subscriber area where you can read in-depth articles by the world's best motorsport writers. Have a look at sister titles, motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly, and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And if you like this podcast, please make sure you subscribe. It's, of course, free, and we normally release episodes every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Here, you'll join a community where diversity equals vitality, where support and empowerment lifts spirits and propels ideas forward. Fearless, innovative, connected. UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.